everybody. Welcome to episode 288 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, coming to you from Austin, Texas. And I'm excited about this episode because we get to answer your questions. So I'd asked you for the Q&A and you delivered. We got a lot of great questions. We'll get to many of those on this episode. And we'll also get to some other ones from my other guests who will be joining me to help answer your questions. I'm actually welcoming fellow podcasters, Trevor and Angie from the Marathon Training Academy to the show. They've been in the podcasting game since 2010, almost twice as long as I have and have been educating people on how to train for all distances, especially the marathon since then. So we thought it would be fun to do a joint episode to answer questions from my listeners as well as their listeners. So they're joining me in just a second, and we're going to get to, I believe it's nine questions today in our Q&A. So we'll get to that in just a second. Before we get there, just quickly wanted to jump in and thank my sponsors for this episode. Zencaster and Athletic Greens for supporting this one. I'll be talking about both at various points in the episode, including talking about Zencaster to start. This episode was actually recorded using Zencaster, which is how I do a lot of my re- remote interviews through Zencaster. It's a platform where you can record remote audio and video so that you don't have the bandwidth issues that you might have over a slow connection. It's magic. I don't know all the details of how it works, but it allows you to record without having those bandwidth issues that you might have on another platform. So I use it for all of my interviews. It's also a way as a podcaster that I get some of the sponsors that support me. So if you're creating content and want to have the same easy experiences that I have with Zencaster, all you have to do is go to zen.ai forward slash rogue 30 and use the code rogue 30 in order to get 30% off your first three months of the subscription with Zencaster so that you can share your story. Again, that's zen.ai forward slash rogue 30. Use promo code rogue 30. And if you'd like to advertise with content creators who use the Zencaster platform, then you can reach out to their ad platform as well by going to zen.ai forward slash running rogue. That's again, zen.ai forward slash running rogue. You'll enter your contact information and they will get back to you so that you can share your brand through platforms like my podcast. So go check it out. Zencaster has been making my life easy for a very, very long time in this podcasting game. So with that, We're going to jump into this conversation with Angie and Trevor. Trevor is actually going to facilitate the conversation. He'll ask the questions. Angie and I will answer as the coaches in this forum, and we'll get through those questions that I mentioned. So here we go. Live podcaster hangout, Rogue Running and Marathon Training Academy. And uh, we're just going to jump right in. So for all of the MTA listeners who might not be familiar with you, Chris. Let's jump. Let's start with uh, what do you guys have going on over there at Rogue Running? I know you're based in uh, Austin, right? Yeah, we're based in Austin, Texas, but we've got physical locations in Austin, Dallas, New York, and then we train people virtually all over the globe. Actually, we've got people training with us on five different continents, and we're all about getting people faster in whatever format that looks like. Some people that means starting and just getting them off the couch and moving that way. Others, it looks like training for a faster half marathon or marathon. And we've been doing this since 2004 with our in-person training. So 18 years, just 
a few weeks ago, and I've been doing the podcast since 2016, so almost six years in December. I think you guys are double that if I'm doing my math right, but but been doing that for a long time, helping people through this platform as well. And yeah, nice. our big thing is we believe in bringing elite athlete training principles to the everyday runner, that we're all humans and the pace might be different. The distances might be different. You have to obviously scale it to the individual person, but we're all human and we can all get faster with the same concepts in mind. So that's, that's the foundational principle for our training. Nice. So do you actually have like retail, uh, like running shoe stores? We used to, we actually sold our retail footprint in, I think that was the fall of 2017, maybe 2018. Sold it to Jackrabbit, which was then sold to Fleet Feet. So they're still a partner of ours. We actually share a space here in Austin together. So we're closely knit with that side of the business, but uh, mm. but we don't operate it anymore, which <laughs> for me has been a good thing over the last several years. Now you have a job, uh, at least one aspect of your job that I don't envy because I'm not a morning person, <laughs> but you, you like re- lead like the morning run. Or something, right? I have a Wednesday morning group that I coach here in Austin that meets at 5.30 a.m. On Why, Wednesday. man? That's crazy. You're in Texas. <laughs> you have to beat the heat. You have to get you gotta beat early. the heat <laughs> and people have to get to work. And so so that's True. when we start. And we usually finish between 7 and 7.15 so people can get on with their days, take kids to school, go to work, whatever it may be. I am not a morning person either, but... I do it for the love of it. <laughs> so, wow. My alarm goes off at 4.30 several days a week to make sure that I can get up and, and do that and coach. But also I run at that time as well because with three kids, that's the only time I can find to do it before chaos ensues. <laughs> I hear you. So I love to always hear how people got into running personally. I mean, you know, before you became a coach, obviously you had to dive into the world of running on your own. Yep. So tell us about that. Yeah, I was a soccer player growing up and running was punishment. So it wasn't something that I necessarily did on its own, although I got a lot of it on the field. So had a background in it indirectly anyway through soccer. And then it wasn't until later in college, really my last year in college, that I started running for running's sake. I had a friend who was a sweet mate of mine at college who had run in high school, wasn't running in college, but it started to run some on the roads and train for road races. So he got me to train for a 10K in the last semester, essentially, of my college career. And so I did that with him. Had a decent result because I had some foundational fitness from playing soccer. And then I was hooked and did my tried to train for my first marathon that same year. Ended up getting a stress fracture and building to that because I was doing everything wrong. Mm-hmm. And that actually that injury then set me on a path to become a coach because I was determined then to not let that happen again. So I got very deep in coaching while I was sidelined with that injury. Kind of a, a similar story to Angie's in some way. So maybe, maybe for the benefit of all the, the rogue running podcast listeners, um, tuning in, Angie, you, you can share, uh, the answer to that same question, how did you get into running and what what possesses you to want to do this long distance running thing? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I was not athletic at all in high school. Um, I did play 
like little league softball when I was a kid. But by the time I was a teenager, I'd pretty much lost like all confidence in my body and became very self-conscious. And I wish I had done sports as a teenager, but it was something that I discovered on my own as an adult. And I never saw myself as an athlete, even though I had dabbled in running and other type of fitness pursuits um, throughout my teens and 20s. And we had moved across the country in 2007. I had two little kids at home. I was pretty depressed about where my life was currently. And I kind of decided that I needed to do something for myself. And so just on a whim, I entered a local 5K. And, you know, I'm like wearing the cotton t-shirt and like some cutoff sweats, like, you know, really the grungy, didn't know what I was doing look. But obviously I did not set any records and I didn't win the thing. There was no amazing story of my triumph, but I kind of like awakened something within myself. And I realized like I really enjoyed just competing and pushing myself. So it wasn't about beating other people at all. It was all about kind of um, beating that voice inside my head that tells me to quit or to not try. And so um, one 5K led to another, as many people find that 5Ks are often the gateway drug to long distance running. <laughs> and I decided I was going to take on something super crazy. Like I didn't have any running friends. I didn't know anyone who was a runner, but I decided I was going to train for a marathon. And at the time we were pretty poverty stricken. So I had enough money for the race entry and my mom bought me a pair of running shoes. And so she was my first quote unquote sponsor, I guess. <laughs> nice. um, So kind of like you, I trained for that first marathon, had just downloaded a plan on the internet and didn't do any kind of cross training, you know, didn't know anything about anything and got injured during that first um, bout of marathon training, had some IT band issues, some lower back trouble, but I did manage to show up on race day and ran the thing, not, you know, just out there and putting one foot in front of the other. And I finished And crossing that finish line, even though I was in extreme pain in my knee and it was extremely hard, I just, it awakened something within me. I knew that marathons were going to be part of my life. And that is kind of what, like you talked about, Chris, what led me to becoming a running coach and us starting the podcast is allowing people to hopefully have a better experience than I had doing everything wrong, finding everything out the hard way. Um, so yeah, we started the podcast in 2010 when I was pregnant with our third son and you never know. Yeah. didn't know who'd listen. <laughs> we are just kind of like producing it in our, our living room. Um, and yeah. it was just really, you know, kind of slapdash, but you know, it definitely <laughs> hit a chord out there. There were people who were wanting to push their boundaries and find out kind of what they were made of. And, you know, for a lot of people running is that avenue to becoming be- better versions of themselves. So, and you know, one thing we had from the beginning in the podcast, Angie, you've always had a brilliant and handsome co-host. <laughs> well, unfortunately, our format yeah. is audio, huh? They don't people <laughs> get to tap into that, but <laughs> they, can ima- they can just imagine it. <laughs> That's right. But you guys were, I mean, that was in the wild west of podcasting days back then. So how did you navigate that at such an early stage? I mean, I feel like when I got started in December of 2016, it was still fairly new. It wasn't quite mainstream. Now there's you know, so many running podcasts out there. And, and at the time I was relatively new to the game, but you guys are way ahead of me. So what was it like at that time? Trevor said, we're going to start a podcast. And I said, what's a podcast? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Literally. (laughs) Cause the idea kind of struck me in 09 
and I went on to iTunes, to Apple Podcast, and looked and just to see what was out there. And there were guys and gals who were like taking a recorder out on the run with them and like narrating their run, sharing tips, but like breathing pretty heavily into the mic. Uh, so there wasn't any kind of like I, what I would consider more like professionally produced and more like tight, you know, podcast focused, focused on the, uh, the needs of the listener. So we've always tried to be prescriptive and giving like good content to listeners. And so from the beginning, it just kind of took off and we had an audience form and uh, the download numbers were just really good from the beginning. So I guess we got lucky with picking the right uh, niche, but I knew that um, but you know, I'm, by this time, Angie had run a couple more marathons and she's also a registered nurse. So I knew a lot of people could benefit from what she had to say and from her experience. Um, so yeah, we, uh, we launched that and have had just a wonderful ride and just a great audience. Uh, and it's always fun. Like you've experienced to talk to folks in the audience and to also talk to experts, you know, in the industry, elite athletes, authors, and so forth. And, uh, one of the earliest guests we had on was Bart Yasso. He was the nice. chief running officer of Runner's World back in the day. And he was probably one of the best guests to have because he's just such a nice guy, like really wanted to help. And we were nervous and I think our audio quit and we had to call him back. <laughs> and we, you know, he, and we'd read his book and he was like the superstar to us, but he was just so down to earth and humble. And then I met him at the Modesto Marathon in California and got to run with him. And he remembered who I was. And, uh, I've also uh, interviewed him in his office before he, before he retired. But one thing he said to us, and I guess I'll leave this with everybody is I'll probably mess up the quote. If I mess it up, Angie, you can, you can correct me, but never limit where running can take you. Did I get it right? I'm either that, or you never know where running will take you something yeah, like that, but yeah. it's true. It's true. And what, and what Trevor's not saying is that when we started the podcast, he was not a runner. And he just wanted me to talk about running. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, you don't know anything <laughs> about running. Like, how is that going to be? I don't want to just hear myself talk this whole time. And so I said, if we do this podcast, you have to start running. And so he kind of had the perspective of the newbie who was going through those growing pains of like, you know, he started out doing the run walk method and he was a person who previously had hated to run kind of like you talked about Chris as a, a soccer player and running was punishment. That's basically how Trevor viewed it. And so listeners got to follow along the journey of him learning to love and appreciate um, something that's hard. And yeah. you know, it obviously has a lot of paybacks and everything, but it is a challenging process to go from that being a beginning runner, you know, starting from ground zero to building up to, you know, three miles and then the half marathon and, mm -hmm. you know, beyond if you choose. Yeah. Running still is hard. It sucks, doesn't it, guys? <laughs> I, it's, it's definitely, we, if, if you're doing it right, it's hard sometimes for sure. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but I love that quote from Bart because it does point to the fact that it's about more than the running. You know, you do find success in smashing goals and running if you keep applying yourself, but it unlocks so much more than that. And for us, we like to say that we're making better people through running or better humans mm -hmm. through running because mm -hmm. it, it has a spillover effect on the other parts of your life. If you, if you let it, if you let it ooze over and that's the powerful stuff. Yes, for sure. Well, we got some great questions sent in from audience members, both of the rogue running podcast and the MTA podcast. 
So since you guys are coaches, I will read the questions and then um, Chris and Angie can weigh in. So this first one is about running and aging. And the question says, I've been running, I'm start that. I've been running for years now, but it was only a year ago at the age of 36 that I started seriously upping my mileage and they're running about 40 miles per week. It's been rewarding to set some PRs over the last year. And it got me wondering at what age on average do most long distance runners peak? Is it realistic to try and set some PRs well into my forties, even my fifties? All right. So from one of my listeners, so we should throw this to Angie first. (laughs) Well, this is a great question. And I think the exciting thing about long distance running is that there is the capacity to improve at any age. Obviously, if you were a professional runner in your 20s, you're probably not going to set the same kinds of PRs if you, you know, have t- taken a break and get back into it in your 40s, 50s, 60s. But for most of us, you know, we are not professional runners. Um, we're doing this because we love it. And it sounds like this listener has gotten into it. Um, more as the years go by. And I think there is a huge capacity to improve. I mean, even if you do look at professional runners, many of them are running, especially the women are running some of their best um, times and improving on distances in their late 30s, even early 40s. So there are just some really some powerhouse women out there right now who are, I think, pushing the boundaries and showing us what is possible. And then, of course, there are runners in their 70s that are running sub three hour times like consistently. So I think the thing is like to never set a limit for yourself because our mind does really influence what we're able to accomplish. And I saw some kind of study, I don't remember, I can't quote the exact source because it's been a few years, but that when you start training seriously, like really, really um, starting to push yourself and apply training principles, you have like a 10 to 12 year window where you can really see some huge improvements. So, you know, if you start really buckling down in your mid to late 30s, then potentially you can see improvements all the way up to 50 possibly. Um, And it obviously depends on a lot of other factors in a person's life, their outside stress level, how much time they have to devote to running, um, their health, how injury prone they are, um, the type of training that they're doing. But yeah, I would say don't set any limits for yourself. Just keep getting out there and trying. Yeah. Chris, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with all of that. The limits just aren't useful. And I mean, I'm 43. I've been running for over 20 years at this stage. And I think for all of us, once we get to a certain age, there's that devil on our shoulder that's whispering in our ear telling us that at some point the Grim Reaper is coming for us and we're going to slow down. (laughs) But that isn't just, it's just not a useful voice because who really knows where the limits are? As you mentioned, for me, I'm 43, been doing it for over 20 years. I still believe there are faster times ahead of me. It means I have to be smarter about my training and the finer details start to matter perhaps a little bit more. But I agree with you. I tell people, you know, 15 years after you start is typically a time where you might start to see a peak. But I talked to, I was talking to a runner when I run one of my runners yesterday who started working with me maybe five or six years ago, and he's now 62 years old. And he asked me that question, you know, can I still run faster? And I said, yes, absolutely. I believe you can because you're doing all the work and he's continuing to build from his starting point. And everything he's doing is pointing to the fact that he's still getting faster even at that age. So absolutely. Don't put limits. Completely agree with what you said there, Angie. Chris, what's your favorite distance? What do you gravitate to? 
Ooh, I I try to do them all because I'm, <laughs> I'm a big believer that all distances matter in terms of getting faster at all distances. If you're going to be a faster marathoner, you got to do the short stuff on occasion. And But if I had to pick one, I guess I would pick the half marathon because it's, I think, a little bit of an underrated distance. The marathon gets all the glory, but a hard run PR on a half distance is just as hard, in my opinion, to prepare for. Plus, it's over faster, and then you recover qu- more quickly. <laughs> and so, I've done actually more of those in my in my career than I have done marathons, and I'm over 20 marathons. So, that's the one I would pick if you if you had to force me. But I still try to make sure I do all distances. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay, here's a question about back to back marathons. Question says, I am 51 years old, um, looking to run Boston to Big Sur in 2023. I've run seven marathons, including four Bostons. I'm curious uh, how my training needs are going to be different. Uh, What should I focus on now? Strength, I assume. Also, any advice for Big Sur coming off of Boston? What is that, like one week apart, right? It's a two-week gap. Yeah, two-week gap. Okay. This time. I've never run a... And also was talking about, okay, I've never run a course that challenging. I'm assuming she, uh, she or he's talking about Big Sur. I like to BQ at Boston and then run Big Sur really easy. Okay, so we actually get questions like this a lot about back-to-back marathons. Uh, Boston Big Sur is definitely a worthy goal and uh, two amazing marathons. But uh, yeah, let's talk about back-to-back. Um, Angie, any thoughts about this? Well, I have never run the Big Sur Marathon. It's a bucket list one for me, but I have coached people who have. And like this listener says, it's an extremely challenging course. There's some some big hills later in the race. And of course, it's stunningly beautiful. So I think one challenge is just like not walking the whole time, just taking pictures. I think I'd be tempted to do that. <laughs> but it sounds like... Um, the listener really has a good perspective. Like their A race is Boston. And so that's really what they're gunning for. And so they're going to be focusing, you know, the bulk of their, their training on BQing at Boston. And then I would just say after Boston, just recover like a boss. That is going to be your full-time job. Um, Allowing your body to bounce back from Boston. You know, hopefully you get the performance that you want there. Um, and then just really focus on your sleep and hydration and nutrition and, um, you know, get a massage or two maybe during that time, whatever works well for them to recover. Um, it's not going to be about training. You're not going to make any fitness gains during that time. And so the key will be just to go into Big Sur as well rested and as recovered as possible. And then, you know, your body knows what to do. You've done 26.2 multiple times. And so just approach that course with the mentality that you're going to not race it because it can be tempting, you know, think I'm going to go into this race and it's going to be quote unquote easy, but then you get the bug, you know, like people start out fast and you start to chase them sometimes. Um, so, you know, just even if you have to like, look at your watch and kind of set an easy pace for yourself, what, you know, you can handle for an easy long run and just try to stick with that as much as possible. And then, you know, capitalize on the downhills if you want, because your, your body may, feel better just cruising down those hills. And if you need to walk the hills, there is no shame in walking. Um, I have walked <laughs> so many hills in my my marathon life. And um, that's a great way to make a marathon a bit easier and kind of like 
give those legs a break from what they've done in Boston. And I guess I would say as far as the training goes, just run as many hills as you can, as much as you can mimic, mimic the hills in Big Sur. Um, in your buildup for Boston, run those hills because it's going to help you in Boston because Boston is actually a pretty hilly course up and down. And then, of course, it will uh, make sure that your legs are nice and strong for Big Sur as well. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. I agree Chris. with all of that. I mean, the mentality is the biggest part is just make sure your A race as Boston, you leave it there. You don't get tempted to get greedy and ask for more from Big Sewer because it's going to be all about covering the distance and enjoying the beauty of that race. I would just add two notes. One is in the prep for Boston, anything you can do to prep for Boston is going to prep you for a hilly Big Sewer. And I always recommend, particularly if you're talking about strength, which she asked about, that you incorporate some eccentric strength type training to help with the downhills, particularly working the quads in that way. Eccentric is basically when you're when you're lowering yourself to the ground. If you were doing a lunge and you were lowering yourself more slowly with a little bit of weight, that would be an eccentric load to your quads. So I would add a little bit of eccentric strength to help with prep for Boston, which will also prep you for big sore. And then the other note I would add is after Boston, I don't typically recommend a lot of running in the next week after a marathon, maybe two runs, maybe three, if somebody wants to do a little bit more with low volume. And so I wouldn't change any of that, but I, what I would consider is some sort of alternative cross-training method, method that's low impact between the two races. So getting on a bike, doing some swimming, even a, an elliptical at easy efforts, whatever you can do to move a little bit to, to encourage blood flow, which promotes healing between those two races without adding the impact, which might set you back. So just maybe a little bit more cross-training in between than you would normally do. Good stuff. I think related to this, uh, we got a question from one of our listeners about maintenance plans. This comes from Michelle. Uh, she says, I would love to see information on what you do between marathons, especially for those living in cold states. Uh, what do you do as far as, uh, and, and the question also goes, what do maintenance plans look like? So yep, maybe, the, maybe the gap is longer. Maybe it's two months in between races. Instead of two months. weeks or four, exactly. Yeah, more, I, I mean, <clears throat> she's talking Major. about between marathons. You know, the thing I would want first say is that to the extent that you can be a year round year round runner, the better you're going to be anytime you toe the line, regardless of the distance. So, if maintenance means continuing to run between those big races, then that's going to be an important part. And then it just becomes a question of well, how big are your goals and where are they focused? If the marathon is your focus and you're trying to get faster there, then as I mentioned about myself, I highly encourage you incorporate training blocks for other race distances because the faster you're going to run a 5K, 10K or half marathon, the faster you can ultimately, ultimately run a marathon. And so that might mean that your maintenance, so to speak, looks like training for a faster 5K or training for a faster 10K where the volume is a little bit lower and you get a bit of a mental break from the long slogs of those long runs for marathons but you're working some faster paces and you're getting a result that's going to ultimately pay back when you go back up in distance. So that would be one way to maintain. She talked about doing how to do it in cold states. Unfortunately, I'm not that much help here because I live in a very warm state, but I do recommend treadmill running if that's all you can do in order to maintain 
in some of those colder months. And I coach a lot of people virtually that live in the Northeast as well as Canada who have to get by on a steady diet of treadmill runs in the wintertime. So I would incorporate that. And if you don't want to do those races in between, that's fine too. But what I recommend is just maintaining some sort of baseline routine, whether it might be running three or four times a week at some lower volume. If you do that and do it consistently, it's going to help you jumpstart that next marathon cycle much, much more quickly. So we live up here in Pennsylvania. It does get cold. Um, Angie, what do you like to do for maintenance during the winter months? Well, I think like Chris pointed out, it really depends on a person's goals. It depends on how healthy they are. You know, if, if they have a niggle or something that, you know, some kind of injury that maybe popped up or some area of weakness during their training cycle, the off season, you know, quote unquote off season is a great time to address any weak areas. And so I always encourage people to um, use that time profitably. Keep a good running, keep a good solid running base going, but address any of those weak areas. And I like to have my coaching clients uh, focus on lifting heavier during the maintenance season because sometimes when you're in the thick of training, it's a little bit difficult to um, lift heavy and make strength and make strength gains while you are um, trying to run fast and do some more heavy volume. So during uh, the maintenance time, that's a great time to get stronger. And then you can capitalize on that um, when you're in the thick of a training plan. And I think it's, this is a great time to have a coach. You know, people often think about just a coach that's going to give them their 16 or 20 week marathon training plan, but the off season can be an excellent time to work on those weaknesses and to make strength gains so that during the next marathon training cycle, you can just capitalize on that and jump in so much stronger, you know, start from a higher level and coaches are great because they can individualize it for your needs. And probably keep you accountable during the off season. Yeah. When it can be demotivating. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I agree that I used to despise the treadmill early in my running journey. It was just so boring. And, you know, there were, it was just hard mentally to make yourself run on a treadmill. But if I lived in a cold state and we do, I would save my pennies for a treadmill <laughs> and, and get one because it can be just such a great backup tool. And even I have found that it's great to use for like easy runs because you can just plug in your easy pace and just go, you know, put on an audiobook, a podcast, watch some Netflix, you know, there's some great ways to, you know, kind of quote unquote, distract yourself. So it's not so boring, but there's a lot of great tools that the treadmill does offer. Chris, do you own a treadmill? I do not. <laughs> we do have a Peloton bike mm -hmm. that mostly my wife uses, but I might occasionally jump on there if I can't get outside for some very, very unique, bizarre reason. Because <laughs> I'll pretty much run in anything. But yep. we don't have the extreme temperatures that you guys have. Well, your extremes are heat, which for me, right. that's my Achilles heel. So I, I <laughs> bow to you being able to run in the heat. <laughs> I know, man. Serious stuff. All right. Before we get to that next question, wanted to jump in here and quickly talk about my other partner for this episode, Athletic Greens. I've been taking Athletic Greens now for more than a month in lieu of taking a multivitamin, which I had actually started earlier this year. I got exposed to Athletic Greens, just like all of you, by watching mainly elite athletes taking it on Instagram and always wondered what it was about. I happened to run into a conversation with their chief revenue officer 
the uh, connecting with Tina Muir when she was in Austin and John, who is their CRO, hooked me up on all the information and it really intrigued me because I was already taking a multivitamin, but this was a way to get even more packed in the same kind of punch. So now I'm taking it every day. I usually take it right after I finish my morning workout before I eat breakfast. It tastes great. It's really sort of a neutral tropical flavor. It doesn't taste like you're drinking a salad. And it allows me to get not only those vitamins and minerals that I'm looking for, but also a superfood complex with whole food sourced ingredients, probiotics, as well as adaptogens so that I can start my day off the right way. So I've been really enjoying taking it. It kind of sets my day, sets my routine, and really gives me everything I need to perform from a running perspective. So highly encourage you to check them out. I've got an offer code for you in a second. But just a note here, I mean, a lot of people take multivitamins, but I think this is a way to take multivitamins, get some additional elements, and also make sure that it's high quality. It costs you less than a cup of coffee a day. It contains less than one gram of sugar. And it's like you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance taken daily. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash running rogue. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash running rogue to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So check it out. And now I'm going to throw it back to Trevor for our next question. Here we go. Okay, here's a question about VO2 max. If I want to make sense of my heart rate data, should I do a VO2 max or a max heart rate test or not? So the question really is about the efficacy of a VO2 max test. Chris, we'll kick this one over to you. Okay. So this is a good question because a lot of people ask me, and I think a lot of times when people are thinking about VO2 max tests, they're somehow thinking about their fitness and getting that number that tells you, are they getting fitter and is there progress? And that can be interesting, but I don't find it that useful for training purposes to just get that raw score VO2 max number. And by the way, your watch is also typically telling you that if you're wearing a Garmin and I wouldn't trust that anyway. But what a VO2 max test can be useful for is figuring out your heart rate zones. And we have different formulas that we can use to calculate those zones by calculating your max 220 minus your age or calculating an aerobic threshold by doing 180 minus your age. And those numbers are useful rules of thumb. But in general, because heart rate is very individualized, if you want to make those numbers matter and mean something, you do need to get a test like a VO2 max test or max heart rate test, because that will give you the information to tell you exactly what those training zones are so that you can then go get into the right aerobic zones in order to get the physiological your benefit you're looking for from training. The other notes I would have about heart rate training is that if you're going to train by heart rate, and definitely get a chest strap for your heart rate measurement because the wrist-based heart rate measures are typically not as accurate or useful. And you want to also probably work with a coach who can help you sort that out because that data can be a little bit harder, a little bit more confusing to use and very individualized, as I said, once you get that test data. But if you have that test information and you're using a uh, a chest-based heart rate strap, and you have a coach who can help you navigate it, it can be very, very powerful. 
I coach an athlete one-on-one who has all of that information and gets regularly tested because he kind of geeks out on it. And I give him all of his workouts based on zones and he's doing fabulous. But again, that's a very specific case for someone who is geared towards thinking that way and who wants to spend the time figuring out that information. And if you're not going to do that, then I would give you a little bit of caution about using heart rate too explicitly because there are a lot of other ways you can approximate effort in our world. And we often do it in my world by telling you what type of race pace to run or what type of effort that you should be running out on on your runs. And so there are other ways to get to it. But if you are going to use heart rate, I do recommend a VO2 max test. Yeah, don't live and die by what your Garmin's telling you because, you know, <laughs> yep. you can think you have a great run and then you're like unproductive. Like what? <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. That's like every day for me. <laughs> unproductive. I, I just switched to the chorus, by the way, and all it tells oh, yeah. me after my runs is goal achieved. So um, yes. it's an upgrade from my perspective. I know. I've and you a, have a chorus, right? I do. Yeah, I've used that <laughs> for three years now. I switched from Garmin and yeah, I definitely like it a lot, especially for the battery life and you know, a lot of the features you get for the price point are really, yep. really great. So, <laughs> so you'd recommend people are always asking us for recommendations. You like the Coros better than the Garmin. That uh, you had. Go ahead, Angie. I do. I mean, personally, I'm not like just, I don't geek out on tons of data personally for myself. Um, so, you know, some of the Garmin stuff you can really, if you get the Phoenix and you can just like have every single metric, you know, basically, but uh, I do feel like it's, been an upgrade for me to have the chorus. I wear it at night, you know, it can track your sleep and different things like that too. So hmm. which chorus do you have? I have the Apex. Okay. Just so I have the Pace Apex. 2, which is the, mm-hmm. the lower model. Mm-hmm. I, I like Garmin. I don't have anything bad to say about Garmin. I wore them for a long time. Just recently retired my 245. But what I found in looking at my next option was you know, Garmin has the 255 out which allows you to basically collect any data you want. You know, just the data amount is endless. And it started to get to a point where I didn't need a lot of that. But I could get this Pace 2 that had longer battery life, life, collect exactly what I needed and not more, and Mm -hmm. still seems as accurate to me. So I'm liking the Coros because of the price value. But I could see why somebody would want to use a Garmin, and I certainly wouldn't dissuade them from that if they wanted to spend the money to get the additional data. Definitely. And I will say Garmin has amazing customer service. And so, you know, if you want more of a personalized approach, you know, you're going to have a lot of questions or an issue happens with your watch. They're really good about, you know, getting you swapped out for something else. So. Well, I use an Apple watch so I can (laughs) shuffle my music and check my email. There you go. I run. That works too. (laughs) All right, so here's a question about speed work. And we mentioned Bart Yasso uh, earlier. He has a workout, speed workout called the Yasso 8s, 800s. So this question is from Megan. I know you've mentioned doing Yasso 800 several times, but when would be a good time to do those? Before starting a marathon training plan, in the middle? So questions about Yasso 800s. We should probably start with explaining what they are and then answer Megan's question about when to implement them into your marathon training. I'm going to have you start Angie, because I don't, I don't use this workout, but I'd use a similar workout and I'm curious Mm -hmm. to get your perspective first. Yeah. Like you said, it's, it's one tool. It's one good strength, uh, one good speed work tool for the Yasso 800s. The basic concept is that you warm up 
um, thoroughly with easy run paced running. And it helps if you do this on a track or some kind of you know, flatter course that you can keep track of 800 meters or, or half a mile if you're not on a track. Um, and so after you're thoroughly warmed up, you run 800 meters, I say like comfortably hard. So you're not like all out sprinting, but you're really pushing yourself. And then you um, do 400 meters really easy. So just a really light jog or even a fast walk. And that's your recovery. And then you go into the next 800 meters comfortably hard. And you do that for whatever the prescribed set of um, intervals is. I have people usually start out with six because it's a pretty challenging workout. Um, and then as they go through marathon training, then we'll have them do like eight sets and then 10 sets. And I guess the reason they really kind of became popular is because people were using them as a marathon pace prediction. And so basically what you do is you record all of your, um, your times from your 800s. And then if you're doing 10 sets, which is the full workout, you throw out the fastest and the slowest, then you average your other eight, 800 times. And that is supposed to give you a prediction of your marathon pace, like what you're capable of running. And, you know, some people swear by them. I, I feel like it's one of those things where it's a good tool. It's not going to nail your marathon time on the head for sure. It can just fluctuate fluctuate wildly, but it can give you a good um, estimate of possibly what you could run your marathon in. Um, so, you know, if your average is, you know, around four, four minutes per 800, then, you know, it's supposed to be that you could run a four hour marathon. Yeah. So if you get 420, then you should be able to run a four hour, 20 minute marathon. And people have praised Bart Yasso for, for <laughs> inventing these and have sent him hate mail also. Right. right. I, I was like supposed to be one, able to run a 320 and yeah. I didn't. <laughs> I feel like this is sort of like McMillan's calculator. He tells me the same <laughs> things about his calculator. That uh, Yeah, I don't think Bart realized that this would take on a life of its own when he was making this recommendation. This is not magic, people. You know, right. it's not like you are now endowed with this time. For right. Era. So when do you <laughs> prescribe those typically, Angie? I usually do it, um, you know, kind of more of the middle of marathon training. Uh, maybe we'll do like the first set of them, um, like four weeks in, and then then I'll do like another set of them, um, like at eight weeks and another at 12 weeks. So I don't, you know, I feel like since they're a, a pretty specific workout, it's not going to replace like tempo work and other speed work, but it's just another tool that people can use. And for a lot of people, they have kind of a barrier to getting to the track. And so because they do, you know, they are best run on a track so you can uh, measure your distance more accurately. Sometimes it's like just a good impetus for people to discover a new type of way to run speed work, like getting to a track, because that can be kind of uncomfortable, like figuring out what track in your area is open to the public and what the hours are. And, you know, people have these often these barriers that you have to be fast to run on a track and, you know, you have to be like, you know, serious runner, whatever the, um, the objections are. So sometimes getting to a track and just having a specific set of speed work to do can be a good way to, to open up a new area for people to explore. Yeah. I, I don't prescribe it exactly as he did. I like to give 800s as an interval workout. Typically I'll prescribe them 
somewhere at the midpoint, kind of as you mentioned. And then I actually like to do a 10, uh, an eight, 800 meter workout near the end of a marathon cycle, maybe three or four weeks out from race day at doing the intervals at 10K equivalent pace with perhaps 90 seconds to two minutes rest between each. Mm-hmm. Because that's a good not only test for where you are in terms of raw speed, but also ultimately makes marathon pace feel easier if you can execute those those 800 meter intervals at 10k pace that late in the cycle. So I find that can be a good confidence builder. And for those that are well trained, typically it also isn't too taxing as long as you're you know getting good recovery and you're not cheating and going a little too fast on some of those intervals, which is tempting sometimes for people. So I don't I don't prescribe it exactly as he did, but I do use 800 meter intervals quite a bit because I do think it's a it's a good. I mean, really, it's it's probably the interval for marathon trainers to use. Okay. So it's a marathon training programs to use 800 meters and a thousand meter intervals. Speed work makes the dream work. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. That leads us to a question about tapering. This question says, how should quality workouts and strength training change during the taper? I'm training for my first marathon and with a taper coming up, I'm wondering if I should keep trying to do some speed work to get my legs used to running fast and just decrease the volume of running or if all my runs should be at an easy pace. I also strength train at least once, once a week, I guess, but usually Okay, usually twice a week. Should I continue to do that or cut it out as well? And she is uh, she or he is planning for a three week taper. So people have a lot of trouble like cutting back during the taper. You know, like the thought of not doing any speed work or cutting back the lifting from two times a week to one time a week or doing easy runs. It's just hard for some, especially if a person's real type A it can be hard to just kind of go through a taper. Taper madness, right? Taper madness is real, no matter how experienced you are. See, I, I sign up for a marathon, and then I just taper all the way to race day. 20-week <laughs> taper. I've still managed to do 18, but my nice. my times are not great. I mean, I have a good time. But the times are not good. <laughs> nice. I love that. So we'll let you guys jump in here and, and share your expertise well, I can on- start. So. So, you know, three-week taper is pretty standard for marathon athletes, especially those that are newer to the sport. For some more experienced marathoners, sometimes I might prescribe a two-week taper, or at least we might test that to see how it works for them as they as they get further along in their marathon journey. But for me, if I break down those two categories, quality workouts definitely stay, but we cut back the intensity and the volume just a little bit as we approach that marathon date for me. I actually have a pretty prescriptive formula for what I like to use during the taper, at least as it is standard. Sometimes, again, I'll make individual adjustments depending on what people might respond to. But I like to have people do perhaps that 800 meter reps at 10K pace three weeks out. I like to do two times three miles, sorry, two times two miles or two to three times two miles at marathon pace a couple weeks out to really dial into marathon pace. And then I have a 400 meter workout done at very, very comfortable efforts that I like people to do during race week to just stay sharp, essentially that last workout, just to keep the legs sharp and the mind from going crazy. So we'll do that in those final three weeks. And then in terms of strength, my general recommendation is overall with running and with strength to maintain your routine as much as possible so you don't go crazy. And obviously you're going to pull back the volume a little bit. 
I like to tell people from a volume perspective to cut back one mile per run per week, keeping all of your runs and maybe putting a, a, a floor on there of three miles for a minimum run, but keep all your runs, just cut back the volume, keep the quality workout as we mentioned and keep the strength, but just cut back the intensity. And if you're worried about it, you know, you could discard those strength workouts in the final week or just move them to body weight movements just again, keep to, to keep that routine because obviously you want to make sure it's not intense in those final weeks. But I like to keep the routine because that helps you stay sane as you're getting ready for the marathon by just keeping yourself busy. So that's what I would recommend. What do you think, Angie? Yeah, that is great advice. And like you said, the length of the taper is obviously going to depend on the individual. Um, I do think it is helpful to follow a a reputable training plan, especially when you're training for your first marathon or you're trying to improve at that distance because it helps take a lot of the guesswork out of it. Um, because sometimes, you know, you can see on social media like, oh, this person is doing a 23 mile run and this person's only doing 18 for their peak week, you know? And so like, then it can really start to get kind of um, heavy and anxiety producing because you're like, oh no, I'm not doing enough. And so like, if you're comparing yourself to other people, that can kind of be a recipe for just having a general lack of confidence. So, you know, I know not everyone is able to get a coach, but to follow a a good tried and true plan, training plan for your first marathon is really helpful in taking a lot of the guesswork out. So then it, you know, you know, the regular schedule of speed work and rest days um, and, you know, paces for different workouts and things. And I do, I do like the three week um, taper for sure. Um, and as far as the strength work goes, um, I t- typically tend like two weeks out to drop it down by about 50%. And, and like with anything in marathon training, like don't do anything new in those last two to three weeks. You know, like I know it's tempting because maybe you have more time on your hands because you're, you know, your workouts are a little less, um, in the volume or the intensity. So that can kind of you know, cause you to go crazy and like, oh, I'm going to do some pickup basketball. I haven't played in 20 years, but you know, like that kind of thing can get added in. So try not to do anything new um, in the physical arena in those last two weeks. And so, and try don't to, not to do anything that's going to make your, your muscles overly fatigued or sore. So I would say, you know, drop back the heavy lifting. And then I typically recommend the week before the marathon, don't do any lifting. Um, like you said, if you want to do mobility work, um, do some light stretching or some good yoga flows. That's really nice to keep your body um, just limber. Of course, if you haven't done yoga before, that would fall into the category <laughs> of like, let's not start any crazy new yoga routines. <laughs> yeah. um, and and I think also, you know, so just be confident about the process too. Like don't second guess yourself all the time because you're going to run into people who are doing a ton more than you are. You're going to run into people like Trevor who are doing a lot less than you are. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to figure out what works for your body. And, you know, some people are super um, injury prone or they have just a lot going on in their lives. And so they just are feeling tired. And um, if you're starting to feel tired and stressed, then that's probably a sign that you need to just get some more rest and some more recovery. And so like that last week before the marathon, you know, recovery, resting, just all your workouts are in the bank. You're not going to gain any fitness in that final week. So don't try to be like making up any long runs. Don't try to be making up any speed work. 
Um, I like doing strides, you know, at the end of a run for people who just want to keep the legs fresh and turn them over, you know, a little bit quickly, but it doesn't add too much fatigue. Um, so yeah, I would guess it would just depend on the person and how their marathon training has gone, but respect the taper. That is the bottom line here. Um, like it's, it's not a time to, you know, feel like you're going to get a ton fitter because if you've done the work, um, leading up to the taper, then you know, the hay is in the barn. So they say, <laughs> yeah, if I had to tell you what not to do, um, but do it in a devil's advocate kind of way, I would say do a hard lower body workout the day before your marathon, even though you haven't done one in, in years, <laughs> eat some adventurous food and then listen to David Goggins book. Can't hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's how not to taper. You, you could write a book on that. It sounds like what could go wrong. Exactly. There we go. Well, I think for time, maybe we should just kind of skip down to some of these questions. How about the gel questions? You guys want to do those? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so here's a question from Candice. Uh, she says gels. I'm curious about the pros and cons and differences of using processed fuel versus real food. So, and then we have a, another question about how to carry fuel on race day. But first, what are the pros and cons and what are your thoughts, guys, guys and gals on um, processed foods and, and basically these gels, chews and so forth? Well, again, I would say don't do anything new on race day. So your marathon training is a great time to start testing out your fueling uh, regimen, you can figure out like how your body responds to different fueling products. Um, I will say that some people, the really concentrated gels just kind of land wrong on some people's stomachs, especially late in a marathon and can cause some gastrointestinal upset. So if you've not used gels, then it can be really risky to just be grabbing the ones from the aid station and, you know, here goes nothing kind of, um, uh, mentality. So yeah, during marathon training is a great time to practice on your fueling. I do, you know, some of the pros of using the processed fueling products, the gels, the chews, the drinks is that they are easier to carry. Um, and there is not a lot of extra fluff. Like you don't really want to be consuming a lot of fiber or fat during your marathon, because unless you have an iron stomach, you know, kind of like Dean Carnazes, <laughs> you can run into some major trouble. Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, just things that are going to be more gentle on your stomach. And, um, you know, some people find that whole food products work great, you know, carrying dates or carrying, you know, rice balls, there's all sorts of recipes out there. But, you know, during your marathon training is a time to practice with those on your long runs. That is like your laboratory for deciding what works for you. And then when it comes to race day, you know, hopefully you have a good system figured out. Don't deviate from it. You know, you might get some samples in your race packet the day before. Like, that's not the time to try those babies, you know, during your marathon. <laughs> <laughs> like, save those for your next training cycle or um, post-race if you're really curious about them. Um, and as far as carrying things, a lot of the bigger marathons won't allow you to wear a hydration vest. So... I recommend people finding shorts that have a lot of pockets. You know, there's several different brands that have just a lot of good pockets. And so you can stash your gels or other fuels in those pockets. Or, you know, there's like kind of like the little fanny packs, the 
I don't, I'm trying, can't think of any brands right now. Spy but Belt is one of them. Things, yes, Spy Belt. I've mm-hmm. even seen people um, safety pin gels to their shorts and then they just remove them. And so there's many different ways to carry them. But um, I think it is more freeing to rely on just the aid stations, especially for hydration, if you can get away with it. Most marathons have an aid station every you know, one to two miles. And getting used to drinking in those intervals and using the fuel that you're used to can be pretty helpful instead of like lugging a hydration pack on your back. But it is personal preference. So. Okay, shameless plug here for a second of our one of our podcast sponsors. Um, in terms of like shorts, one uh, this is not a sponsor, but there's a company called Race Ready with tons of pockets. Race Ready shorts. Do they still make shorts? I don't know. They're, they're like a really old company. Yeah. I don't know, even know if they're around anymore. Okay. Honestly. <laughs> the one company that. that we love, Chris, I don't know if you heard of Path Projects. No, I haven't. Path. And uh, the guy, uh, Floris Gearman, he's, he's also got a podcast and he's part owner in this company, but I've been wearing these shorts for running and, and all summer. They're amazing and lots of pockets. And uh, we've been big fans of UCAN as far as fuel, a fuel source. We've used hammer gels in the past and then UCAN's been a great sponsor and it's worked really well for us through the years. So that's I'm that's a huge UCAN user myself. So completely recommend that. It's the nice thing about UCAN for those that don't know it is it's not a sugar, a pure sugar based product like a lot of the gels and, and the chews. It's a yeah. cornstarch based product that's a slower burning carb that gives you a longer burning energy without the big spikes that you might get in blood sugar and insulin that come with those other products. So it's, you know, I guess you consider it processed, but it is a more palatable processed option. In fact, it was developed for people that had issues with insulin. And so it can be used by people that are diabetic, for example, to help keep their blood sugar stable outside of running. Mm-hmm. And so that's something I use pre-run. I haven't started, I haven't used their during run gels yet. I know there's a lot of big fans of those out there, but yeah, I'll, use loves them. I'll use it pre-run and pre-long run, pre-race, and then supplement with other things once I get on the course. But I can wait a little bit longer than most because I've got that good you can start. The other thing I would point out here on the process versus whole food products is as you alluded, it's, it just comes down to practicality. I think for most of us, the processed options are just easier to carry, easier to take, easier to chew, you know, perhaps because it's hard to chew when you're running. But there are options out there that are perhaps more friendly when it comes to those types of less processed ingredients. So for example, Huma is one of the gels that I recommend a lot for those that like to use gels because it is It's got five or six ingredients per gel. They use fruit puree. They use pure cane sugar. So it's less processed, I guess, ingredients. And it's all things that you can pronounce if you look at the back of those packages. So that's one that I tell people to go to if they're worried about these types of things. And What was was that called? It's called Huma, H-U-M-A. And it's all basically fruit puree-based gels that tend to also sit well in people's stomachs. So it'll have fruit puree, pure cane sugar, a little bit of chia sometimes, caffeine maybe, and a few other things, but not anything you wouldn't recognize if reading the label. So that's one I recommend for people that are concerned about what's going in their body. Honey Stinger is another one that I like. It's honey-based sweetener versus some of the other more artificial type 
sweeteners or process, I should say, sweeteners. So those would be a couple to look for if you are trying to minimize those scary words on the back of labels that you can't recognize or pronounce. And then in terms of what to carry, I completely agree. You know, Spybelt is an Austin-based company, so I have to give a plug for them. They're very small looking when you put them on, but they can expand and hold a lot of gels. I'm also a big fan personally of Tracksmith's apparel, and they've done a good job with a lot of their shorts to have a lot of pockets. So there's, but there are other brands out there that do that. So find your pockets or get some belt that you can use to carry things because that should keep it fairly simple versus the hydration vest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember we, uh, these, these gels by Hammer, uh, Hammer Nutrition, uh, we used in the beginning and, and I always like the taste. Uh, they have Huckleberry, I think, because it's a Montana-based company. Huckleberry is kind of a thing up there. So um, I could, you know, eat those during a marathon. But after, like, toward the end, like, I, too much gel just just bothers me. Like, <laughs> right. A lot of people have that experience. Just this cloying <laughs> taste. Like, I can yeah. maybe handle four. <laughs> right. Four or five is it, you know. Like, with you can, it goes down really well. But we had... An ultra runner on the podcast, Stephanie Howe. I think uh, her name now is Stephanie Howe Violet, and she won the Western States Ultra, you know, 100 miler back in the day. And we asked her, "How did you feel?" And she said, "I ate 93 hammer gels." Oh my gosh! (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh! Wow! What nightmares are made of? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's that's the hard part of running a 100 miler. I've been told is figuring out how to eat. Yes. I'm like wondering how many of these she vomited back right? because wow. that like seems like a lot. <laughs> that's a, that's a sport all to itself. The, the one thing I, I do people some hear people sometimes worry about is getting all of that sugar. And mm-hmm. the thing about that is, yeah, I understand that worry because if I was sitting here working and doing podcast editing and eating hammer gels, that would be terrible for me. But when you're using it in a workout, and it's going basically straight to being used as energy, then it's definitely has a different impact on your body than if you were just taking these things in while eating dinner one day. So, so for me, as somebody who tries to take care of my body, it's definitely something I worry about less in the context of sugar that's going straight to work versus sugar mm-hmm. that might be hanging around and being stored in other ways. So that hopefully allays some of the fears of the people out there that are worried about taking in so much sugar. Yeah, we definitely recommend a whole food diet in your general life. But, you know, on race day, especially if it's a goal race, then go for convenience if at all possible. <laughs> all right, let's do one more question. This is about easy pace. Uh, the listener says, I'm a new runner, focusing on consistency in my running and cross training routine, not training for any particular race. I've made an effort to follow the 80-20 practice when slowing down my easy runs, but I still notice they can be mentally challenging, telling myself to keep going when I could easily stop and walk. Is this a sign that my easy runs are still too fast, or am I just getting adjusted to the mental side of running? You know, if she, maybe I'll start. I'm not a coach, but yeah. um, <laughs> I remember, and I've done 18 marathons now, and like Angie said, I hated to run in the beginning. and um, she actually designed a run walk program for me. And I remember it was hard to run for a minute straight and I wasn't that out of shape. I was kind of like a, a desk potato, but I wasn't like, you know, overweight. Um, I just, just didn't like it. And I think a lot of it was mental. Like 
you just are out there and you're trying to go and you're like, man, this really sucks. Like, how can you not run with, without, you know, people that run without music, I thought that was just inconceivable, <laughs> but you know, you just keep going and your, your, your mind does get tougher. And then pretty soon I was running for three minutes and then walking for one minute. And then I was running for a whole mile. And then I did a 5k half marathon, marathon, the rest is history, but it still gets really boring sometimes, but that's when you should just lean into it. Like, this is what I want. You know, I want the misery and the boredom. And I want all of this because the harder it is, and the more it sucks, the better prepared I'm going to be for the, for race day. If you decide to sign up for a race. So lean into it. Yeah. I like that. The one thing I always remind people is that it's about covering the distance. It doesn't really matter how you do it. Some people get very specific about, well, I don't want to walk at all during the marathon. And that's a fine goal, but I don't see any issue with walking. If you need to walk, you're still covering the distance. And especially if you're new, there's nothing wrong with mixing in walking breaks in order to build that endurance so that you can sustain the running part. My encouragement is to do it just like you did, Trevor, which is to set up some sort of cadence where you might be running for two minutes, walking for two minutes or three, one or one, three, however it works in order to keep everything in control. And so what I would ask this person is, you know, how does it feel? You know, how's your breathing? How's your heart rate? Do you find that when you're running that those things are spiraling out of control? Or is it you can still have a conversation with somebody? Because on an easy run, I want to see that you could have a conversation speaking in full sentences with somebody. And if you're not able to do that, even if it's an imaginary friend next to you, then that probably means you should be integrating in walk breaks until we can get that heart rate and breathing to stay under control while you're doing the running portion. So I would let that be your guide. And, and again, if it's, if those things are getting out of control, then incorporate the walk breaks. And if they're not, then, you know, just try it, try it for longer and longer intervals and see how it goes. Yeah. I think this listener is, is doing it really smart because they're trying to follow the 80, 20 principle, you know, keeping the easy runs easy. And so that they can have more quality, harder runs. Um, and I, I really don't think you can go too slow on your easy runs. Most people make the mistake of staying kind of in that gray zone for most of their runs. So their hard workouts are not really hard enough to, um, you know, be beneficial and their easy runs are not easy enough to actually help them recover or build endurance. So, um, I think, I think they're starting out really smart. And so if you're on an easy run, you know, I don't think you can go too slow. If you want to walk, walk, you know, especially if it's a hill, if you find like Chris was saying, your heart rate is going up, you're having diff more difficulty breathing, like that's not easy. So you, you know, slow that baby down. And if that means, you know, throwing in some walk breaks, I mean, I still, you know, I'm training for my 70th marathon and I still, I still throw in walk breaks when on an easy run, you know, if, if I'm just not feeling it that day. So it's, it's all good. And yep. that, that voice in your head you know, that, that I think that is where the real battle is mm -hmm. because you will notice like that ego voice in your head that tells you it's very self-protective, you know, it's, it's has your best, um, in mind and it's telling you, it's like, you know, this is hard. This is scary. This is something new. And it's trying to like shut it down before you do any damage to your body. Of course, you're not going to do any damage. Usually that voice is very, very proactive, like way too proactive and will keep you from reaching your goals if you listen to it too much. But, you know, just acknowledging that voice in your head, whatever it's telling you, being like, I hear you, you know, you're either it's saying that you're not going fast enough or that you're going too slow. 
but you just kind of have to override that um, after you acknowledge it and sometimes acknowledge the emotions that are coming up as you push yourself to do hard things. And that is one of the challenges of long distance running. But I think also the beauty of it too, is that you get to um, experience different parts of yourself. (laughs) You were becoming a machine (laughs) and you're going to be amazed where you're at a year from now and what you're able to make yourself do. And there's so many inspiring people in the running world. Like we just, we just had a guy on our podcast who ran across Canada from coast to coast and holds the record, um, Dave Proctor. And about 41 days in, he, he, I think it took him like 56 days, but 41 days in, he fell and hit his head and like passed out, you know, like had a little concussion, but he had to keep going. And then he developed a stress fracture. Was it in his foot? Remember that? And his mentality was, well, um, I got to make it to, he's running to, to Victoria, Canada, from Newfoundland to Victoria in, in BC. He's like, I've got to make it, and I will think about my foot later. He just pushed it outside <laughs> the mental vault, is how he described it. And uh, it didn't acknowledge, he acknowledged the pain, but he's like, you know, I'm just not fitting into my goals right now. So I'm just going to deal with it when I get to Victoria. And that's how he made it. Now, that's pretty extreme, but. <laughs> What the hum- human spirit is capable of is just truly amazing. Yeah, do not try I can this. admire it. Do not I admire it from home. the comfort of my couch. <laughs> do not try this at home. Yeah, as coaches, we do not recommend overriding those those signals. But if you're, right. you know, pursuing some kind of huge goal like that, you know, there is you're definitely going to different lengths to accomplish something that that huge. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, but you said it, Trevor. Just keep showing up. And if she keeps showing up, mm-hmm. then the changes will be magical from week to week, month to month, year to year. And someday she'll look back and be shocked at where she is if she keeps doing it. So keep going and you'll be fine. Awesome. Well, that's a good place to end. Just want to encourage everyone listening to keep going. And thank you for those that send in questions. Uh, always fun to do a Q&A. Thank you, Chris and Angie, for sharing your knowledge and expertise. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Chris has been fun hanging out with you here on the, on air here. (laughs) Yeah, this is great. (laughs) We should do this more often. For sure. Definitely. (laughs) We'll let you know if we ever make it down to Austin. Yeah. Do tell. Trevor will show up to your 530 group. No. Perfect. If you have a 5, 5 p.m. like run and pub crawl. We do have a 6 p.m. option every night as well. So. Oh, nice. We'll be nice. just fine. <laughs> and I'll come hang. I'll come run with you because I don't coach those. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you. So there you go. That was my Q&A with Trevor and Angie from Marathon Training Academy. Thanks to them for joining me. Thanks to them for everything they're doing to share their expertise on their podcast platform, Marathon Training Academy. So if you're ever waiting on an episode from me, you can go check out their feed to also get a lot of great content on coaching and getting ready for the marathon, but also for any distance. So I'm going to wrap this episode. Go check out the offers that I included in the episode. You can also find those in the show notes. Thanks again to Zencaster and Athletic Greens for sponsoring this one. If you'd like to learn more about Rogue Running, you can go to roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.